All right, good morning, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Talmudic Ethics. So we're about to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is the topic of honesty. Um, and you know this statement, finish, this, finish the phrase, if you will. This is like a fill-in-the-blank uh, question. Honesty is the best policy. Good. Do you believe that? Raise of hand. Honesty is the best policy. Uh, okay. Is it ever better to lie than to tell the truth? Yeah. I'm saying, is, it be- it's, is there conceit? Not telling somebody something a lie. Oh, is a lie by omission a lie? Excellent. Excellent. These are some really good questions. Today we're going to get into the topic of honesty. And we're going to talk about whether or not honesty is really the best policy when perhaps it makes sense to bend the truth, break the truth, fudge the truth. We have so many different expressions that we use for saying something that is less than 100% true and honest. We're going to explore this by way of some, uh, uh, by way of an activity that I think is going to be a lot of fun, to kind of explore what you think um, about whether, when, in which cases it makes sense to lie, in which cases it makes sense, or when it's not, when it's okay to lie, when it's not okay to lie. So, if you look at the uh, the opening page of the booklets that I prepared for you, so if you have the PDF, it's on page ninety four, um, learning activity number one. Okay, don't worry about all the text over there. We're just going to go through the cases, and, and there's going to be three options. The question is, is it right to lie in any of these given circumstances? So I'm going to ask for three possible answers. Either yes, it's okay to lie, no, it's not okay to lie, or maybe, or I'm not sure. Okay, you ready? Let's go. Number one, scenario number one, is it right to lie in order to get hired by a firm suspected of polluting in order to gather evidence. So you want to go, let me explain, you want to go undercover, you want to gather evidence, this company is suspected of polluting, so you are getting hired under false pretenses because you really don't care to work for them, you just want to get the scoop. Is it right to lie to get hired in order to do some undercover investigation? Who says yes? Raise your hand if yes, okay? All right, I thought you were raising your hand there for a second. <laughs> All right, who says no? No? Who says maybe? Maybe. Okay. By the way, I can't, I can't see what's going on because I don't have the screen to see online. Um, but online crew, you guys also should weigh in on this as well. Um, hey, Faye, good to see you. Um, weigh in, please, as well on this if you say yes, no, or not sure. All right, next scenario. You guys ready? All right, is it right to lie in order to keep one's landlord from knowing you have a cat. So the, the policy is you cannot have pets in the apartment, but you want to have a, you have your cat named, what's your cat's name? Yeah. Meow. It's the cat's meow, or the cat meow. The cat formerly known as meow. So, so you have a cat, are you allowed to lie in order to keep the landlord knowing from you have a cat? If yes, raise your hand. Who says yes? No one says yes. No. Okay, maybe. We got a few maybes. Okay, good. Let's continue. By the way, again, I can't see you guys on Zoom, but please make sure you raise your hand and weigh in on this. All right, next question. Is it right to lie in order to keep secret a crime you committed 10 years ago that you deeply regret? You committed a crime, it's a number of years ago, you deeply regret it, are you allowed to lie about having committed that crime? Yes. Oh, no. 
Not sure. Wow. Okay. All right. Got it. I was going to come clean, but now I'm not sure whether or not, whether or not I should. <laughs> right. Oh, right. What's the context? Next question. Is it right to, oh, this is going to be good. Is it right to lie in order to get a job at a law firm by claiming to have graduated from an Ivy League school? So you're trying to get a job at a law firm. You're saying on your resume you graduated from Harvard Law School. Turns out, didn't happen. Is it right to lie in order to get a job at a, at a law firm? Yes. No. Maybe. No. May wow. This is the first one that was unanimous. This was unanimous. Were we unanimous online as well? Yeah. There were no's. Okay, everyone, everyone agrees no. By the way, I, I don't even think we have to pr present the scenario. Is it right to lie by going to medical school to try to, get a, uh, to try to get a job as a doctor? Please no. Do you remember that story a few years ago in Florida? Yeah. Where there was like this, this kid, this 17-year-old kid who was who yeah. pretending to be a doctor? There was a movie about this. Guy. There was a... Yeah. Got, got a person there. Catch me if you can. Remember that? Frank Abagnale. By the way, by the way, oh, this is crazy that you mentioned that. Why is it crazy? I just listened to a podcast that it, the premise of this podcast, this is totally off topic for a second, but it's, it's so interesting. The premise of the podcast is that Frank Abagnale, the catch me if you can guy, whose story is that he pretended to be a pilot and a doctor and a lawyer and da, da, da. even he, he apparently he, he says that he was a doctor in, in Atlanta, by the way. Anyway, turns out that according to the investigation that I listened to, which may or may not be true, because <laughs> I, I don't know, turns out he made up most of that story. Yeah, he made up about making up. You with me on that? A lot of that is, I mean, some of that is true, but a lot of that he, he, he basically, um, what's the word, exaggerated about his, uh, his prowess at fooling people. But I guess he is good at fooling people because he fooled everybody and he fooled Steven Spielberg to make a movie out of it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, right? That guy. Exactly. Anybody ever been a rabbi? I would hope not. <laughs> the rabbi mask comes off, actually. Um, right. So that would be a problem. But it's funny because I listened to podcast. We were up in Boston for a few weeks over the summer. And I was driving around Cambridge. And now we're talking about Ivy League schools. And like, what? This is wild. Anyway, back to the story. Okay, back to the next scenario. Is it right to lie in order to get out of helping a friend to move? Oh, can you help me? schlep boxes and you're like oh i got this root canal that i totally forgot about i wish i could are you la is it right to lie in order to get out of helping a friend move yes yeah. <laughs> Faye, i think you're the only honest person here <laughs> you're honest about you lying <laughs> about what about right to lie who says no who says maybe in other words, yes. Okay, next. <laughs> Maybe it's like if I really want to get out of it, I will. Um, okay, is it right to lie in order to keep from hurting your parents' feelings? Yes. Hmm. Right. Okay, yeah, I, it's a little vague. No? Who says no? Yeah, uh, maybe? So maybes? Okay. It's a yes or maybe. Okay. Oh, really? Yes. Yes. My mother never knew I had COVID last summer. Got it. She's 
Right, you don't want to stress her out. Oh, okay, so this is this is a really good. This is a really good real life scenario. Right, if your so your mom is ninety nine, Kanina Hara, amazing, ninety nine years old, and you don't want to stress her out. She's a worrier. And and you so you with so you're withholding the fact that you had COVID when you're fine, but you don't want to stress her out. What would you guys say in this case? Okay, I think everyone would raise their hand and say that's okay. I'm gonna vote for everybody on that one. All right, next, is it right to lie in order to avoid an embarrassing admission of ignorance? Yes. Okay. No. Maybe. Okay, next. Is it right to lie in order to keep a friend from discovering preparations for a surprise party? I'm, you're getting ready for a surprise birthday party. I'm like, oh, can you meet me at the, at the, for, for lunch? You're like, oh, no. Meanwhile, you're blowing up balloons for them, right? You're like, oh, no, sorry, I have that root canal again that's come back up. So are you, is, that, is it okay to lie in order to keep a friend from discovering his or her birthday party? Yes? Yes? No? Maybe? Okay, next, is it right to lie in order to keep a sick man from knowing he is dying? That's a complicated question. Yes? You're saying maybe? That was a tentative yes. <laughs> it's one finger up, it's tentative. <laughs> no? Disclose. Let the person know what their... It depends on the situation. Depends on the situation. Maybe? Maybe. Okay. Uh, uh, last one. I mean, there's more scenarios, but the last one in this chart. Is it right to lie in order to protect young children from a frightening truth? Like, for example, that there are really monsters under the bed. <laughs> Shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> they, were always, they were always suspicious of it, but the truth is... Anyway, yes, keep children uh, protected from a frightening truth. No, any no's. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. All right. So, um, what I learned from y'all, no, I said that wrong, all y'all. Am I get, is it, I've been here for a number, for a few years. Am I, is it starting to roll off the tongue? I don't know, I don't know if it sounds legit or not. Anyway, what, I'm, what I got from you guys is, um, you know, I want to ask you, what, what rules have you discovered based on these questions when you feel lying is more okay versus less okay? I know which one no one said was okay. That was the one about practicing law, and then my twist on that was practicing medicine if you're not qualified. Everyone said, do, no, no, do not, that is not okay. Whereas when it came to the surprise birthday party, everyone's like, it's fine. It's fine. You can lie over there. It's, I mean, most of you said it's fine. So, hey, good to see you. Uh, can you come up with a formula for, why you th for when you think it's more or less okay to, to lie? What do you guys think? I think it hurts more. Oh. That's what I was thinking. In other words, is there a victim? Is there, um, yeah, is there a victim? Is someone getting hurt by this? Or is no one getting hurt by this? So in a scenario, we're talking about lying. <laughs> so um, in a scenario where someone stands to get hurt by, the li by a lie, and like hurt pretty badly, because you're, you're not qualified to do this job and you're pretending that you have a law degree or a medical degree, that sounds, that sounds like someone's gonna get hurt from that. So I think we all would say, and we all did say, that it's not okay to lie in that scenario. But lying about preparing for someone's birthday party, you know, misrepresenting where you are, that you're not at home, you know, 
cutting, uh, you know, uh, frosting the cake, you know, with the lights out waiting for them to come home. That, that most of us, I think, felt it was more okay. And what I, I, would, I would guess the reason is because, well, who's getting hurt by this? On the contrary, no one's getting hurt by this lie. You're doing it for their benefit. You're doing it for them to be surprised, to have a happy birthday. It's a good thing. You're, you're doing it with their best intention in mind, as opposed to cases where you have a negative intention in mind. So one might say that when it comes to lying and honesty, that it's a bit of a moving, I don't know what the right word is. I don't know if it's a moving target, but it's a bit of a moving something, right? So it's, there's no hard and fast rule, which by the way, is a very important uh, thing to focus on. Today, of course, we are going to explore the topic of honesty from a Jewish perspective. I mean, after all, this is called Talmudic ethics, and we are going to explore uh, Jewish wisdom as, as contained in the Talmud. Um, but really, what I want to begin with as we analyze the concept of lying is, you know, getting into different perspectives on morality. Philosophers have uh, discussed over the years you know, what is the grounds? What, what, what is the basis of morality? And there's two primary schools of thought when it comes to morality. One philosophy takes a more absolutist view. This is, this is what philosophers call an absolute moral imperative. If something is moral, if it's right, then it is an absolute. So you will have some philosophers that when pushed will say that one for example, when it comes to honesty, which is our topic today, which is a moral value, that one must be honest no matter what happens despite the consequences that might happen. So for example, let's say, God forbid, a murderer knocks on your door and asks if your friend is over and your friend is over. And you ask, well, why are you asking? And they say, because I'm here to take their life. <laughs> what would you say? <laughs> are they home or not home? What would you say? Absolutely not. But if you believe that honesty as a moral value is an absolute, i.e. there's an absolute imperative to be moral, there's an absolute moral imperative, then one could argue that one must divulge, must, one must be honest despite what may happen. It sounds mishuge, sounds crazy, but that's when you take an absolute approach. There's another theory which is, um, which is called a more, which is a more consequential, a consequentialist approach. It's about consequences. And that approach says, you don't look at morality as an absolute. You look at, well, what's going, what's going to happen, right, based on my action or inaction. So in the case where this murderer is knocking on your door and asking if your friend is home and they are home, you are best served to be dishonest because morality is not an absolute. It's something that is, under most circumstances, it is the right thing to do because it leads to the best consequences. But when it leads to the worst consequences, then you discard, you rip up that moral, that, that, that moral suggestion and you go for what will be the most, uh, what will pay off the most. Now, these are two different approaches vastly different approaches. One looks at morality as absolute, and one looks at it in the context of consequences. And this is fiercely debated by, uh, by philosophers. But here's what I want to share with you today. The question that we're going to deal with, the major issue that we're going to address now and come back to at the end of the session, is 
honesty in the context of justice, law and order. And in order to get into this topic, I need to introduce the following, what I think is a fascinating idea. The United States system of law, as other countries as well, is very different than the ancient Jewish system of law. In many different ways, including in the way the courtroom is designed. In the United States, um, the, the way justice is, uh, the, the process is an adversarial system. What is an adversarial system? You have the prosecution, you have the defense. It's not about a criminal, criminal justice case. You have the prosecution, you have the defense, and you have counsel, you have attorneys, lawyers for both, and the system is designed where you have a judge, the rule of the judge, the judge doesn't examine the witnesses, correct? Correct? Yes? Any fans of true crime or courtroom drama, court TV, uh, you know, watchers? So the judge, Matlock fans, what was the other guy? Perry Mason, right? What was Angela Lansbury? Murder, she wrote? Classic. Classic. I'm just pulling out these archives, my brain from somewhere. Anyway, so, so, so think about the way courtroom is set up. You have the judge who's sitting there. Then you have the prosecution, the defense, and, and you have witnesses that are being called up. And what's happening is we call this an adversarial system where the prosecution and defense you know, the prosecution is making a case, the defense is trying to poke holes in that case, and then the prosecution is trying to poke holes in the poking of holes in the case, right? And they're, they're basically fight, I don't know, fighting, they're basically, you know, um, arguing against each other, and the judge's role is to make sure that it's a fair fight, right? That no one's saying something they shouldn't be saying. The judge is not necessarily, not, or not at all, examining the witnesses, cross-examining the witnesses, saying, I believe this is true, I don't believe this is true. The, the judge is making sure that the process is fair and just. This is very different in the Jewish system of law. In the Jew, and when I say Jewish, I don't mean in Israel, I mean the Talmudic system of law, or the ancient Jewish system of law. In the ancient Jewish system of law, it's not an adversarial system, it's an inquisitorial system. You have judges, and their job is to find out the truth. And that means that they call the witnesses. They're going to find out what happened. They examine the witnesses. They cross-examine the witnesses. They ask the questions, and they demand the answers. The judges are directly probing the truth. This is very different than in the U.S. legal system, where the judge is not probing for the truth. The judge is a referee to make sure that the two sides are arguing with each other fairly. Does that make sense? How does this relate to what's going on in Israel now? With the Supreme Court, it's a little bit, that's another, that's, a, that's about checks and balances. That's a bit of a different, that's not, that's, not this, that's not this direct process. That's a, that's a worthy conversation in and of itself, but not for right now. Um, so there's one thing that we know in Judaism when it comes to law and order and, and judges. Take a look at... Text number one. If you turn the page to page 95, take a look at text number one from the Talmud. Talmud says, if a judge feels that a witness is deceptive, he should not say, I will decide the case based on the strict principles of the law and let the blame for possible injustice fall upon the witnesses. 
You shouldn't say that. Why? For it says, you shall distance yourself from falsehood. In other words, if the judge senses that this witness is lying, you know what the judge has to do? Go after the witness. Examine the witness. Cross-examine the witness. Get to the truth. Just because, you know, no one else objected, you know, to, to, to this testimony. In the U.S. legal system, if the prosecution calls a witness, right, and the witness seems to be lying, but for whatever reason, the defense does not cross-examine the witness. Guess what? The judge doesn't do anything. Garnished. I mean, how many times do you hear of cases that are overturned, convictions that were overturned, right? Later on through DNA or whatever it is, right? Evidence that shows that they didn't commit the crime, but they were convicted in the court of law. And so many times it happened because their defense didn't do a good job. Where was the judge? How come the judge didn't step in and say, why don't you ask that question? I have a, I, I have a really, something doesn't make sense here. Why don't you ask the tough questions? You know why? Because the judge doesn't get involved like that. The judge is a referee. In Judaism, it's different. The judges get involved. The judges are hands-on. Again, it's not an adversarial system where you have prosecution, defense. You have the two sides fighting against each with each other. This is an inquisitorial system where the judges directly get involved. Which leads, and, and, and again, and the guiding, the guiding tenet when it comes to being a judge in, in Jewish law is truth. Um, is, is, is a strict adherence to truth. Which leads us to the following fascinating case study. Listen to this, page 96. This is a real case that a, that a, a, a rabbinic judge submitted to the chief rabbi of Israel. It's chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Avadya Yosef. And before we get into the case study, I need to introduce one important piece without which you won't understand the question. In a rabbinic court, so nowadays, just to, be, uh, just to give you a little bit of background, nowadays there is no Sanhedrin, which means there's no Jewish uh, high court, like a Supreme Court. There is a Supreme Court in Israel, and, you met, and that's something else. What I mean in, in Jewish law or rabbinic law, there's no Supreme Court. But what you do have is a betin. A betin is usually comprised of three rabbis that could sit on a case, a monetary case, other cases of dispute between people, if they agree to go, to, to go through to Jewish, to, 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 uh, to, to follow Jewish law, they'll go in front of a betin, they'll figure out who, you, typically one side will pick one rabbi to be a judge, the other one will pick the other one, and those two judges will pick a third, and that's, that's usually the way it's done. Here's what's going on. When it comes to a betin of three judges, betin means a, a court of three judges, so um, you go by the majority. If it's 3-0, great. If it's 2-1, you go by the two against the one. Right? You follow the majority. However, that is provided that all three judges render an opinion. If two judges render an opinion and one judge says, I don't know, this is too complicated for me, I actually don't know, I, I have no vote. Then, even if the two, let's say there's two people uh, that are, that are um, you know, arguing against each other, Ruvain and Shimon. So let's say two judges of the three side with Ruvain. So they have the majority anyway, but the third judge says, I don't know. You don't, you don't rule in accordance with Ruvain. You have to bring in more judges because you have to have at least three judges that render an opinion. So even if you already have the majority because it's two, so it doesn't matter what that guy says, but if the third judge doesn't say anything, you need to bring in two more judges. Does that make sense? Okay, with that in mind, let's read the case study. 
Dear Rabbi Yosef, and this is one rabbi asking the chief rabbi the following question. I am a member of a group of three judges who are involved in arbitrating a monetary dispute between two members of our community. My view differed with my other colleagues in the Bet Din. Thus, the majority of opinions seemed to be leaning toward a position which I felt was utterly mistaken. I feel that by bringing in more judges, the case will gain from the input of the additional judges, hopefully leading to a just verdict. Is it right for me to be deceptive and say that I don't have an answer in order to force the other members to invite two more judges? Let me explain what he wants to do. This guy, so there's Ruvain and Shimon, those are the two people that are, fighting, that, are, that are in the monetary dispute. You have a panel of three judges that heard the case. Two judges are ready to rule like Ruvain. Here's the third judge. He says, you, you guys are out of your minds. He, he doesn't say that indirectly, but he hears as they're discussing the case, he hears that they're siding with Ruvain. He thinks they're Meshuggah. He thinks they're crazy because it's clear to him that the law should be like Shimon. But he knows that if he votes Shimon, they vote Ruvain, he's outvoted. So he's thinking, there's a wrinkle in the law. The law is that all three have to render a decision. I'm going to say, I don't know. I'm stuck. I don't know. I, have, I, I can't render a decision. That will force this bet then to bring in additional two judges on the case for a total of five. Then they rehear the case, and he's thinking with those two additional judges, if they're, if they're thinking with their right mind, they will agree with me that the law, that the ruling should be like Shimon, the other guy, and then we'll have three, and they'll have two, and justice will be served. Are you with me what this guy's trying to do? He's trying to lie or be deceptive by saying, I don't know, when he knows what his opinion is. He knows his opinion is that Shimon should be, uh, that, 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 that he, he, he rules like Shimon, but he's going to say, I don't know, to, 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 to allow for two more judges to come in. So he's asking the, yeah. But then, when there are five judges, and he rules against what the other two ruled initially, is that demonstrating his deception? You're saying, will it come out eventually that that's what he, I mean, if he plays it right, he'll say, oh, I didn't see. I mean, who knows? The other two judges might agree with the other two, and then you have four against one, and then, you know, he's out. But he's, he's trying something. He says, right now, I believe what's about to happen is a miscarriage of justice. He's feeling very, very troubled by this potential impending miscarriage of justice. So he says, the only way to stop this is by saying, I don't know, instead of saying, I know. And then two more judges come in. Hopefully, you know, sanity will prevail. And that's it. But, but in order to achieve that, he'll have to be deceptive. I.e. by saying, I don't know the verdict. I don't know my verdict. When he does know his verdict, is he allowed to be deceptive? In other words, do the, do the, do the ends justify the means? Who is that, Machiavelli? Right? Do the ends justify the means in the context? When the Torah says... Um, distance yourself from falsehood. When it, specifically when it comes to justice, for judges, like no lies. Does it mean this? Is this included? Or would this be kosher? That's the question. By the way, this is a major question. And by the end of the session, um, we'll, you'll, you'll have some, some, uh, some context with which to understand a resolution over here. But let's take a bit of a pause when it comes to law and order and discuss the value of honesty in and of itself. What is the value of honesty, and what is the danger of dishonesty? Um, 
And to do this, I want to do one more activity on page 97. I'm going to present four scenarios, and you tell me whether this is lying or whether it's not lying. Okay, number one, page 97. If someone is delusional and tells outlandish stories, would we consider that person to be a liar? Would you call them a liar? What do you think? Liar, not a liar. Liar? Huh? Delusional. Delusional, right. You want to say they're liars, they're delusional. Okay. Number two, if I tell a joke and everyone knows that I'm joking, is it a lie? A comedian gets up on stage and starts spitting this hilarious story. Never happened, right? Is it a lie? What would you say? Lie, no lie. Comedy. Okay, good. Three, I visit a new town and tell people my name is Harry. Really, my name is Joe. Really, my name is Ari. Whatever. No one is harmed by this lie. They do not know me. Is, uh, um, sorry, I'm not concealing a past nor impersonating anyone. Is this a lie? I think many of us would say yes. Okay? Four, a teacher accuses a student of not having studied for a test. The student, in a hurt and sarcastic voice, answers, oh, of course I haven't studied. I haven't spent even a minute looking at the material, thus implying by her tone that she has been misjudged. In fact, the student has not studied. Did the old double reverse psychology sarcasm. Is the student lying? So the student says, no, you're, oh, sure you're right. I didn't study a drop. Meanwhile, she didn't study. Is that lying? And that's the key word over here, because one way to understand what is a lie, or what constitutes a lie, you could look at the words, the transcript of the words being said, in which case the comedian is a liar, because that never happened. The delusional person is a liar, because that also is not true. Or you could look at intent to deceive. So when the person comes to town and says their name is Harry, when their name is Joe, that's deception. It's a lie. Now, is it a lie that's, that, that has a victim? Who knows? But is it a lie? Sounds like it's a lie. The, per, the, 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 the girl, the student, who says sarcastically that she, she hasn't studied when she hasn't studied, but she's trying to imply that she has, is being deceptive. We, we might call that a lie, even though when you isolate the quotes, it re, without tone, it's actually tr a true statement. But, but the tone, the sarcastic tone, gives the impression that it's the opposite of what she's saying, which is, which, is, which is deceptive. So it's real. when we talk about lying, really the issue is deception. What's the, what's the problem of deception? Well, let's, let's look at this from a Jewish perspective. Page 98. It's a fascinating Talmudic quote. It says, God abhors, God hates those who speak one thing, while another thing in their hearts. The Hebrew is so much nicer than the English. The English is definitely not as, not as elegant as the Hebrew. It's, in the Hebrew, it says, um, God dislikes hamidaber echad bepeh ve'echad belev. When you say one thing in your mouth and another thing is in your heart. Echad bepeh, one thing in your mouth, one thing in your heart. In other words, when, when your heart is not aligned with your mouth and vice versa. When you are feeling something but saying something else, i.e. deception, that is what is not good. Take a look at text number three. Here's how this is codified in Jewish law by Maimonides. This is, this is fascinating, this application. 
It is forbidden to accustom oneself to smooth speech and flatteries. You know what that means? <laughs> Being deceptive. One must not say one thing and mean another. One must not urge another to join him at a meal when he is aware that the invitation will not be accepted. You see that? Look at that application. Imagine you invite someone over. You know they're out of town. How do you know they're out of town? I don't know, because last week, remember we talked about gossip? Because your friend told you that they were, that they were going... You know, they were going out of town. So meanwhile, you're like, oh, great. This is perfect. I need to invite them, but I don't want them to come over. So I'll invite them when I know they can't take me up on the invitation. Great. You can't do that. In Jewish law, you can't do that. Because it's being disingenuous. It's being deceptive. Nor, let's continue inside, nor should one press upon another any marks of friendship which one knows will be declined. So the point here is um, we're not supposed to give off a false impression of how we feel and who we are, etc. Deception is at the core of lying. Now, what is the value of truth? So if you turn the page, we have a bunch of different quotes here about the value of truth and not being deceptive. Text number four, this comes from a philosopher. Turns out he was one of the founding, Francis Hutcheson, one of the founding fathers of, of the Scottish Enlightenment. There you go. Let's see what he says, text four. Suppose men... Imagine there was no obligation to veracity and acted accordingly, speaking as often against their own opinion as according to it. Would not all pleasure of conversation be destroyed and all confidence in narration? Men would only speak in bargaining and in this too would soon lose all mutual confidence. If, if, if people said things they didn't mean, you would never enjoy conversation. What about friendship? What about conversation? If I don't know where you stand, you don't know where I stand, you know, we can't have a we can't schmooze. What happens to society? It's not a good thing. Text, so, so lying is bad for the fabric of society and community. Text 5 tells us uh, from the Midrash, from a Jewish source, that lying is also bad for our own reputation. Thus is the life of the deceiver. Even when he speaks the truth, he is not believed. It's like the boy cried wolf, right? If, you, if you're deceptive, then at some point you're believed about it. Nothing. You're, nothing, is, nothing is believed. Text 6, lying can also lead to violence. Text 6, from, uh, from, a, from a Jewish source from the 14th century. Lying can cause quarrel, strife, murder, vain oaths, and many other transgressions. All these evils stem from speaking false, falsehood. Therefore, the Torah says, distance yourself from lies. And immediately it states, do not kill the innocent with the righteous. This instructs us that lies lead to killing the innocent. Therefore, happy is the person who distances himself from them and trains his mouth to speak truth, humility, and right. Through this, he will attain his desire, a good path in this world and in the world to come. He will guide his household in the straight path and will be saved from all trouble. Somebody recently told me, just a few days ago, about a new series on, maybe it's not new, on Netflix. It's called Love... And death? Is that what it's called? Love and death? It's about a case in Texas? About a woman who's having an affair? And then, and then, and then the, the wife of the, the, of, of the guy comes to kill her, and then she kills that. So, oh, we don't know what happened. It's such a fantastic story that it actually has two series, one on Hulu called Candy, and one on Netflix called Love and Death. Oh, I said, I didn't know. I, I just heard about this story. It sounds fascinating. Apparently, she just moved to Georgia. No, she moved to Georgia 25 years ago. She lived in South Georgia, oh. divorced her husband that she had cheated on. Got it. 
Got it. And he's actually a, a psychologist working with couples. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. So it turns out, I, 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 I thought when I was hearing this story, that was recent. I guess it's a while ago. Interesting. Different, different actors. There's also a current movie, uh, feature film, I'm not sure of the name, but it's an interesting premise. The, the wife is an author, and she's written a book, and her husband is, gives glowing reviews, and she later discovers that he hated the book. Ah. And, and then That's she goes back, kind of rethinking their entire marriage, wondering if... Interesting. If anything was real. Wow. Interesting. Oh, from Seinfeld? Nice. So what's interesting, as I, so as I was reading text six now, I was thinking about that case, the first case. In other words, it says lying can lead to uh, murder. How does lying lead to murder? Well, deception. Once, I mean, it could lead to anything. But lying is, lying is problematic, and it could, in, in, in a horrible case, lead to the loss of life as well. Um, there's a story in the Talmud. I don't remember the, all the background, but apparently this guy was involved in a life of crime. He was a thief, a robber, whatever it was. He comes to the rabbi, one of the Talmudic rabbis. His name was Rabbi Shimon ben Shatach. And he says, Rabbi, I want to like, um, turn my life around. I want to come clean. What's the first step? Rabbi said, here's the first step and the most important step. Don't lie. From here on out, no, no mistruths. As long as you're telling, the in other words, if you can't, if you're not going to be deceptive, that will keep you in check. Right? Once you're deceptive, then, then the, if you have to be honest, then that's going to that's gonna set you on a good path. Yeah. Everything you're saying is sort of true on a lower level, but if you go to the Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court, it becomes very much like the Israeli court. The judges don't hear witnesses. Where they get involved directly. They yeah, they, they question the lawyers directly at the uh, appeals level, and, you know, and give hypotheticals. And that's why they ask for opinions or papers. The other thing that we haven't touched... Well, that's a, and I thank you for sharing that. That's an important piece. It's more a caveat that... At a lower level, it's more adversarial. At a higher level, it gets more inquisitorial. The other question that hasn't been covered here, everything we're talking about is one person versus another person or something. We haven't talked about what does Torah say about what's worse, lies of omission or lies mm. of commission? You know, that was, somebody mentioned that before, yeah. If someone said, you know, I was being charged with murder, and at the end of it, he's found innocent, and they said, well, I just heard that your friend was standing right next to you and handed you a weapon. Why didn't you say that? No one asked me. Mm. I mean, right. you know, is that a lie? Or is it just that he wasn't so, so, excellent question. And I'm glad you brought that up. Because, no, because if we define a lie as not what you said, but the act of being deceptive, then I would include lies of omission in that context. As we did in that, that activity, as we saw in that activity, um, what was it, um, page 97, it's not always about what's being said. It's about really the deception and the intent to deceive. I mean, sometimes we might be deceptive without even knowing it. We didn't mean to be deceptive. And then, is it a lie? I mean, maybe, I don't know. But if you intend to deceive by saying something or even withholding information, we could put that into the same category of deception. 
Now, when it comes to honesty, um, do yeah. Um, about the delusional person. There's a common phrase done by progressive lefties and commies that um, I know my truth. And it comes with a question on what grid is truth on? I mean, how do we apply this thing? You know, someone says, I know my truth. I know I've been um, uh, persecuted all my life. The numbers say different, but the thing is, I know my truth. And I really hate that someone has. Um, Possession of truth. Truth should be something that all of us can witness and maybe see points of, but it should be a grid. That that might be a bigger question than than we can address here. How do we define, you know, is truth subjective, objective? If it's objective, then what makes something? At which point does it pass that bar of objective truth? That's a good question. I, I think that's that's uh, no, that's a good question. All right, now let's get into some, some, some more spiritual teachings about the value of truth. We're going to do a few of these quickly. Page 100 at the bottom, text number 7. It says, the seal, the Talmud says, the seal of the blessed Holy One is truth. And that's a very important statement. It means that what is God's signature? What's, you know, like a, like a signet ring? What's the signature? What's the seal of God? It's truth. Um, for those familiar with the Hebrew alphabet, it's very fascinating that... Um, in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for truth is emet, which is comprised of three letters, aleph, mem, and taf. All of those letters have a broad base. The aleph, the mem, and the taf, I wish I could show it to you right now, but whatever. But they all have, they're all like wide letters. Whereas the Hebrew word for falsehood, sheker, all three letters come to a point at the bottom, which tells us, according to tradition, that truth has a solid foundation and falsehood lies are on a very narrow point, which means that at some point they're going to fall down, um, which is the which which is one of the foundations behind text ten, which is from Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, which says the following: Page one hundred two, the world endures by virtue of three things: justice, truth, and peace. There are three pillars. It's really like three pillars that hold up the world: justice, truth, and peace. Truth is one of those pillars. Sorry? Yeah. So truth is one of those pillars that holds up the world um, along with justice and peace. However, however, when it comes to truth, truth can also cause damage. Truth can also hurt. Truth can also um, be less than moral and less than virtuous. And we can think of many different scenarios. But I'd like to talk about this in the context of a fascinating Midrashic statement. Text number 12. Actually, eh, let's do text 11. This is uh, from a Lutheran theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who probably would have never imagined that he'd be quoted in a class called Talmudic Ethics. Here we go, text number 11. It is only the cynic who claims to speak the truth at all times and in all places to all men in the same way, but who in fact develops nothing but a lifeless image of the truth. He dons the halo of the fanatical devotee of truth who can make no allowances for human weaknesses, but in fact he is destroying the living truth between men. He wounds, he wounds shame, desecrates mystery, breaks confidence, betrays the community in which he lives, which means you know, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a phrase called truth dumping. 
You know, should you be truthful in all scenarios, even when the truth is hurtful? Some may say yes, but some may say no. You know, it's better better to to you know better to um, <laughs> to not say the full truth in order for the sake of, for example, peace, which is what we encounter in text number twelve, and that's the segue to this really powerful midrash. This is a story that that portrays the background. Uh, behind the creation of Adam, of the first human being. So Rabbi Shimon says, Rabbi Simon says, uh, that's not Simon says, that's something else. That's a, that's a different game. Rabbi Shimon says, when God was about to create Adam, the angels on high divided into different camps. Some said he should not be created. Others said he should be created. All right, so here are the camps, the four camps. Kindness said, let him be created, for he will, gener- for he will be generous and kind. Truth said, do not create him for he will be full of lies. Righteousness said, create him, for he will do charity and righteousness. Peace said, do not create him, for he is full of conflict. So we have two against two. We have, right, it's a deadlock. So who are the two? Kindness and righteousness voted yes to create Adam. Truth and peace voted no. So what does God do? So God took truth, threw it to the ground, and then created man. God says, truth, you're opposing. Off you go. I'm I'm, I'm throwing you out, throwing you to the ground. And so God created man. What's the obvious question? If you're throwing away truth, what's left? There's still an opposing, there's still an an, an opposition. What's 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 uh, What's the opposition to the creation of man? There's two. What's the other one? What's the other opponent? Deception. No, no, not deception. The other one is, no, there's four here. Kindness, truth, righteousness, and peace. Right? Kindness and righteousness say create. Truth and peace say don't create. So God gets rid of truth and creates. What about peace? Peace also said don't create. So you could say, well, yeah, but now it's two against one. So you go by the majority. But there's a deeper idea here. The deeper idea here, and I'll, I'll share with you an idea, an insight from the Kotzka Rebbe, the great Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Kotzka, lived a few hundred years ago, very sharp rabbi, very sharp scholar. He said like this, when you, get, when you throw away truth, then you can achieve peace. Why is it that people fight? It's only because they're entrenched in truth. It's because they're saying, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to reconcile because I am right. right? Why, why is it that conflict happens? It's because each side is standing on ceremony, or more than ceremony. Each side is stuck in their own position and is unwilling to yield, is unwilling to bend. And so when you do away with truth, with that sense of like, I have to be 100% true to myself and my vow, whatever it is, when, you're, when, you go, when you do away with truth, you can achieve peace. This becomes a very powerful teaching in Judaism, in Jewish law, about lying for the sake of peace, or at least bending the truth for the sake of peace. Remember the, 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 uh, the foundational teaching that I started this entire series with. In the U.S., the U.S. system is based on rights. The Jewish system is based on responsibilities or obligations. And in Judaism, there are many obligations, and many obligations that might be competing. So when it comes to obligations or imperatives, there's an imperative to be truthful, there's also an imperative to achieve peace. And the question is, 
What happens if those are in conflict? What happens if I can either choose truth or I can either choose peace? One way of saying it sometimes in relationships, I can either be right or I can be happy, right? So the question is, which one should, which one should give, get, you know, give way to the other? Should we uphold truth or, or try to, should we try to uphold truth at all costs or peace at all costs? In our tradition, um, the tradition, Judaism teaches that we, we compromise on truth for the sake of peace. Where does this come from? It's actually not in this text. I don't know why it wasn't included here. But the source of this is actually God himself in the Bible, in the Torah. What happens? I'll tell you, I'll tell you the background story very quickly. Remember Abraham and Sarah, the first Jewish couple? They had, they had a tent that was open to all passers-by. They were very generous and very hospitable. But there's one thing that they didn't have. They didn't have a child. So at some point in their old age, God sends an angel. This is all in the biblical story. God sends an angel. The angel tells Abraham, and Sarah also hears that she is going to have a child. She is 90 years old, or 89, 90 years old. He's 99 or 100 years old. They're both very old. Um, and she laughs. And the Torah says, the Bible says, she laughed. And she said to herself, she said, are you kidding me? We're gonna I'm going to have a child? My husband is so old. There's no way we're going to have a child. That's what she said in her heart. When God repeats the message to Abraham, so God says to Abraham, I'm, I, I don't know why Sarah is disbelieving, is, is incredulous that this could happen, saying that she's so old, you know, I can, I, I, this miracle can happen. God is basically saying, I can make it happen. But when God, again, but when God repeats her surprise and shock at this news, he says that she was shocked because she thought she was too old, even though in her heart she was like, he's too old. God bended, bent, bended, bent the truth, massaged the truth, compromised on the truth in order to maintain shalom bayit. You know what that means? Shalom bayit, peace in the, in the house. This is where we get divine guidance on this notion that peace in the home is, supersedes a strict adherence to all truths, right? So we don't have to be so harsh on truth to the point that it actually breaks our relationships, breaks our family, breaks our friendships. When it comes to truth or peace, we always go back. Now, that doesn't mean that we absolutely trample truth. And then and we just, you know, we, 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 we shoot down truth altogether. But what it means is we compromise, we, we massage the truth for the sake of peace. Another example of this is text 13. This is a very interesting example. This is a dispute in the Talmud between the Academy of Shammai and the Academy of Hillel, as you'll see. Our rabbis taught, page 105, our rabbis taught, how do we dance before the bride? What songs do the dancers sing while they dance? The Academy of Shammai says they sing the praises of each bride as she is. The dancers only sing about the positive qualities with which the bride is endowed, avoiding anything untrue or exaggerated. But the Academy of Hillel says, no, we treat every bride as if she is beautiful and sing before Kala Noah a beautiful and graceful bride. The sage, so, so Shammai says, you praise her and her qualities, whatever she has. Hillel says, every bride is beautiful. So the Sage of Shammai's Academy 
said to those of Hillel's, if she was lame or blind, do we say about her a beautiful and graceful bride? The Torah says, keep, uh, keep far from a false matter. How can you lie like that by saying she's beautiful and graceful if she's not? The sage of Hills Academy said to those of Shammai's, according to your words, if someone has made a bad purchase in the marketplace, should one praise it in his eyes or criticize it in his eyes? You must say he should praise it in his eyes. From here the sage has said, a person's disposition toward people should always be congenial. You know the expression, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder? How could, I mean, Shammai, the Academy of Shammai says this, but it's, it's, hard, it's hard to imagine. So at a wedding, that you would say anything less than 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 a beautiful than than praise for me beautiful. So Shammai, the Academy of Shammai, they were sticklers to the truth. Remember, Shammai was the guy when the fellow who wanted to convert to Judaism said, "Teach me Torah on one foot." He chased him out of the out of the synagogue. He says, "Get out of here! It's, what, what are you making fun?" Whereas Hillel said, Hillel said, "On one foot, as it were. Don't do to others what you don't want done to you." That's the whole Torah, the rest is commentary. Right? The golden rule. Then he said, now go and learn. But he gave, to him the, he gave him the core. Hillel and his academy, they were kinder, you know, they were more kindly disposed to others. Shammai, they were more, they were more strict. So Shammai was a stickler for the truth. He said, Only praise the bride based on her qualities and don't lie. If you don't think she's beautiful, then don't say it. Whereas Hillel says, what do you mean? Obviously, the groom thinks she's beautiful. So, of course, she's beautiful. Be, and be kind and try to foster love and kindness. And so, we see this idea in Jewish law that one is allowed to and one even is supposed to bend the truth for the sake of peace. There's other cases. Text 14a, a person who is dying is told to confess. Right? So if somebody is dying, there's a confessional prayer in Judaism where one, it's like a Yom Kippur confessional where, some, where right before someone dies, they say that, or before, shortly before one's passing, one is meant to do the vidu, the, the confession. Text 14b says in the Code of Jewish Law, in order to prevent breaking his heart, causing deterioration of the person's condition, and expediting the process of death, we tell him or her, many confessed on their deathbed and didn't die in the end. In the merit of your repentance, you will live. In other words, imagine you tell someone it might be time to say the confession. What are you telling them? That they're dying. But that might make them very afraid and might kill them right there on the spot. So you tell them, say the confession, but it doesn't mean it's the end. Could be you'll recover, but just get it in. What if that's not true? To be continued. Right. What if that's not true? Say it anyway. Why? Because you don't want to break someone's heart, especially in, that, in those moments. You don't want to make them feel like, you know... So the point is that truth, although it's a very important value and the seal of God, at the same time, there are cases where we massage the truth. Look, is it ever true that somebody was, on the, was, on the, was, on, was knocking on death's doorstep and recovered? It is true. Is it going to happen in this case? Maybe, likely not. But So is it the truth? Sort of. You hear you're, you're massaging the truth, right? You're... you're you're um, threading the truth, as it were, in order for a person's hope, in order for, you know, to help a person in their health or to create peace, etc. Yeah. So I'm exonerated for not telling my mother. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I told you we'd get back to it. It's, it's very clear in Judaism that not all truths need to be said if, if they're going to cause 
a greater harm. Who determines the greater harm? Well, we have certain parameters. Peace would be a, uh, um, comp- uh, sacrificing peace would be a greater harm than truth. Um, hurting someone's physical health would be a greater harm than the harm of, of, of massaging the truth or omitting the truth. Um, I'm going to skip a few of these texts because I really want to get back to our legal uh, case study. Okay, here we go. There's one exception. <laughs> you can bend truth for certain values, but there's one, there's one area that you never bend the truth in. You know what that is? Getting back to our case study? In the context of justice, of law and order. There's one context that you do not ever bend the truth. Text 16a, page 110. Here's the full quote from the book of Exodus. Do not pervert the judgment of your destitute person in his grievance. Distance yourself from falsehood. The very verse that talks about not lying, right? Don't, not being deceptive is in the context of judgment, is in the context of speaking to a judge in, 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 a, in a court of law. So even though we might compromise truth for the sake of peace or for the sake of life, you know, someone's health, we do not compromise truth in the context of justice. A judge is never allowed to compromise truth. Um, I want to do a... Hmm. You know what? Let's, let, I'm going to do just a few paragraphs from text 16b. It's very long. I want to do um, uh, one, two, three, the fourth paragraph. The last three paragraphs of that text. Page 112, really, at the top. From where is it derived that if two litigants come for judgment, one dressed in rags and one wearing an exquisite garment worth 100 manas, we tell the well-dressed one, dress like him or dress him like you, so that the court will not be disposed toward the well-dressed one, Rashi. The Torah states, distance yourself from falsehood. In other words, the court has to be so, that the judges have to judge so truthfully without any bias that literally they can't be swayed by one dressing nicer than the other. By the way, it can go both ways. One, a judge might be dis, uh, disposed to, to swing the case like the wealthier litigant because, I don't know, wants to curry favor with that guy, or out of compassion might want to swing the case like the one who is the underdog. Both, are not good for, both would not be good for the truth of justice. So therefore, the litigants dress the same. Let's continue. When litigants came before Rabbi Barav Huna, who was one of the great rabbis of the Talmudic era, he would say to them, remove your fine footwear and then go down to judgment. No Jimmy Choo's in court. In other words, just because you have nicer shoes, that you, that, that's going to sway the judges? You can't do that. So they were blocked uh, going down to the courtroom. Uh, let's continue. From where is it derived that one litigant should not clarify his case to the judge before his opponent arrives? A litigant who argues his case without his opponent being present will not feel ashamed about lying. The Torah states, distance yourself from falsehood. Again, we have this idea that one litigant should not get in their case before the other one shows up to court because without the check of the other guy there, this guy might be more emboldened to lie without the other guy. The point is that in, the, in a courtroom, truth is the only factor. When it comes to the house, you got to think about peace, shalom bayit, right? right? How does this tie look on me? How does this dress look on me? You can bend the truth for the sake of peace. But when it comes to the courtroom, truth has to prevail, which leads to the following. I'm going to do a, a, another case study that's not in here, and then we're going to resolve our original case study. Here's a case study that is fascinating, but I, it needs a very quick introduction. In cases of capital crimes in ancient Israel, there was what was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was 
the Supreme Court, the high Jewish court. There is a Supreme Court in Israel, but again, that's not the Sanhedrin, that's something else. This is an ancient Israel. There was a Supreme Court. Now, when it came to capital cases, there were 23 judges. When it came to cases of national interest, you had 71 judges. But in capital cases, 23 judges. The way it worked, it's an inquisitorial system like we said before. The judges were hands-on. They were interrogating, examining, cross-examining, probing for truth. When it came time to render the verdict, let's say in a capital case, the way it would work is nothing happened behind closed doors. Everything was transparent. Every judge said the ruling as they saw it. Let's just keep it simple, guilty or innocent. Every judge had to verbalize and say their ruling. It wasn't like, you know, they came back and said, all right, this is what we came up with. Everything was transparent. The way it worked also was that the youngest or least tenured judge would go first so as not to be influenced by the most tenured judge. Because imagine if you had the big wigs of the court and then the schnook who just joined, they might feel pressured to go with the, you know, with the elders. So you start with the youngsters and then you go up the line to the elders. One more wrinkle. Listen to this. This is fascinating. In Jewish law, in original Jewish law, in a capital case, if it's a unanimous guilty verdict, if it's unanimous, then the, the individual is found not guilty. Why? Because if it's unanimous, Jewish law says the court did something wrong. If no judge could find any extenuating circumstances, any side of, of, of leniency, it means the judge did not do his due diligence, and not that the person walks free, but the death penalty is not applied. You with me on this? If it's 20, you need a majority. If it's 23-0, you don't apply the death penalty, paradoxically. Now what happens? Listen to this following case. Imagine. The first 22 judges, guilty, 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 guilty. The last judge also feels guilty. But if he says guilty, what's going to happen? They don't apply the death penalty. Right? Because it's 23-0. So this judge is, gonna, is, is tempted to say, you know what? I'm going to say innocent. I believe guilty, but I'm going to say innocent. So now it's 22-1. Death penalty is applied. You with me on this? Can the judge say innocent in order to have the consequence applied that he wishes to be applied, even though he believes guilty? Conversely, what if this last guy feels innocent? 22 guys said guilty, but he feels innocent. So what's he tempted to say? Guilty. Because if he says guilty, the guy's not going to get executed. Are you allowed, as a judge, as the 23rd judge, are you allowed to bend the truth? to achieve the outcome that you want to see? Jewish law says unequivocally, the answer is no. If you believe guilty, you have to say guilty and he doesn't die. If you believe innocent, you have to say innocent and he dies. In a court of law, the judge has to be truthful 100% despite the outcome, the opposite outcome of what you wish for. And so getting back to our case study, remember how we started? The rabbi asked rabbi, the chief rabbi of Israel, he said, I'm sitting on a panel of three, three judges. A monetary case, right, nowadays. Three, three judge betdin, right? And the two are siding like the other guy, like one guy. And I think they're both crazy. 
I'm tempted now to not render any decision at all because then they'll be forced to bring in two more judges who might have a brain in their heads and might agree with me and there'll be three against two. Am I allowed to say I don't know when I do know what I, what I believe? Based on what we just said, strict adherence to truth, we would say that, you, that he would not be allowed to say that if it's not truthful. Although the difference is in this case, he's not actually rendering a decision against one or the other. He's just bringing two more judges, in which case it's maybe not so bad. So it's, it's a little bit of an open-ended question. Nonetheless, um, it would seem like one must be truthful in the context of justice. If you're a judge, truth is the only, the only, um, the only uh, a feature. And the reason for this, just in short, um, and, and uh, we're just going to close it out in just uh, 60 seconds. The reason, in short, is because in Judaism, the understanding is that justice is really divine. Judges don't create justice. Judges follow, the in Jewish law, a divine protocol, and at that point, because how could anyone know what really happened or know what's going on in someone else's heart? It's impossible. So you do your best, and you follow as true as possible to the protocol, um, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then the process plays out. So, if we're starting to bend our, the the truth in order to achieve an outcome, that means that we're trying to manipulate justice, trying to create justice. Once a judge tries to create justice, then the judge is now overstepping their bounds. In Jewish law, you the job the job as a judge is not to create justice; only God can create justice. The job is to follow the to follow the procedure, and then God takes care of the rest. That's what Judaism believes. Of course, it's coupled with a belief in a higher, a higher, a higher justice, but that's the way, that's, uh, that's how Judaism uh, justice unfolds. So what's the, what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is, be truthful. <laughs> truth is a value. Peace is a value. And in, and in law, truth is the only value, the overarching value. All right, thank you for joining me today for, uh, for lesson five of Talmudic um, Talmudic Ethics. Hope you enjoyed it. Next week, the topic is fair use and copyright in Talmudic law. Can you imagine? Copyright in Talmudic law. Who would have thought they talked about it? Um, all right. Same bad time, same bad channel. By the way, remember that Talmudic story where God threw truth to the ground in order to create Adam? It says in the future, um, you know, when you take a seed and throw it to the ground, what happens eventually? pops back up, bigger and bigger and stronger. Eventually, there will be a time when truth will grow from the ground once again, and uh, that's a time when truth and peace will coexist without needing to compromise truth. All right, great to see you all today. Hope you enjoyed it, and we're back on for the uh, next week for the last session. Oh, quick announcement. Uh, we have this coming up one week from tonight, um, the event with uh, Holocaust survivor Esther Bash. She's coming in from Arizona. She's 95 years old, Kanainahara, and she's going to be sharing her experiences um, in Auschwitz, survival, and how she rebuilt her life from the ashes of despair. So join us. It's going to be very powerful. She's an incredible speaker. All right. Pleasure. All right. Oh, and by the way, in case you're wondering what's going on, we have a two-week yeshiva for the yeshiva students that are off for a summer break. So instead of just kind of, you know, chilling at home and wasting time, as it were, you know, just, just uh, you know, not studying. We're doing a half-day yeshiva from the morning until 1 p.m. So it's a concurrent program, which is great. All right. Thank you, Pleasure, pleasure.
So I uh, tried to look up the place that you said publishes this. Yes. And it, um, there were like 20 centers with that name. Yeah, so headquarters is, out of, is, is in Brooklyn. But there, I'm talking about in Brooklyn. Oh, <laughs> the Roar Jewish Learning Institute? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The one, well, the headquarters is on Eastern Parkway. What, what specifically are you looking for? Oh, nice. Absolutely. So headquarters, they that's where they kind of prepare the the materials, the curriculum materials. What I would go is go to the website. Uh, the it's Roar R O H R. Roar Jewish Learning Institute. Yeah, um, it's named after the benefactor. Um, here here's the website to go to. Um, my jli.com so myjli.com and then you'll be able to put in your zip code or the zip code you'll be in and find the closest center that teaches uh, these courses okay yeah okay. that that'll be the easiest way okay. because so that's the closer to me also yeah for sure yeah. that's um th that website is the website of the central organization and they know they know all the affiliates that are teaching okay. it so if you put in this zip code we would come up but if you put in whatever zip code you'll be in New York. Yeah. When are you actually moving? Wow. Wow. You got your place ready? Everything's ready? Um, my place in New York is not ready yet. Oh. It should be. So. Got it. And where is it? Exactly. Which? Queens and Jackson. Okay. Place. Nice. Daughter goes to a synagogue in Flushing. That's unbelievable. Nice. It's old, you know, it's from the 19th century. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, good luck on the move. You're here next week? Yes. All right. We'll do the official farewell then. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Worked out okay? Okay, awesome. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank Enjoyed you. It. Sorry, awesome. I missed last week. I had a uh, dental appointment. It wasn't, wasn't a root canal, so I'm not lying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, cleaning. <laughs> I, I record these just for my own. Uh, so yeah, if, yeah, you want, if, yeah. if you 